0: If you need a Bible, raise your hand. Uh, someone will bring it over to you. And um, by the way, someone told me to mention that we teach out of the New American Standard. And um, if you're listening online, perhaps, or if you're here, you have a different version, you can go ahead and gather that Bible. One thing that's unique about uh, doing what we do here at Calvary, we teach verse by verse. And one of the unique things about that is you teach what's in front of you, even if the message is difficult or challenging. And tonight is kind of one of those. Tonight, we're going to uh, be looking at the story of Genesis. And in this particular chapter we're going to be studying tonight, it has all the things that would make up a great TV miniseries or a TV drama. It's got all that good stuff. It's got the good guy and the bad guy. It's got family feud. It's got crime and motive and intrigue and evidence. And it's got interrogation and denial. And then it has serious, serious consequences that we, as readers, need to deal with, and obviously the the men and women in the Bible had to deal with. The problem is, is that it's not a miniseries; it's real, and it really speaks to the human condition. And so, um, right now we are in week five of our our verse-by-verse study of Genesis. And turn with me to Genesis chapter four is where we're going to begin. And Before I get into the text, I do want to say just a few things about it. As we are looking at Genesis, I want you to remember this is our foundational story, the book of Genesis. Remember that it's not a distant story, but really it's the story of all of us. Adam and Eve is the story of all of us. And we've been playing around with this idea that sometimes we ask the wrong questions that we can miss things sometimes when we put our modern perspective, our modern spin on on this ancient text. And so we, we've gone to the beginning, and we understand that if you don't understand the beginning of a story, sometimes you won't get everything that you're supposed to, or you ought to out of the story. So it's always good to get back to the beginning, and so we can get the whole story. So we've been going back to the beginning, and we're asking... The question, what did the original writers or the original readers of the book of Genesis, what did they feel? What did they see? What did they hear? How did they apply it? I once heard a pastor say that, uh, he said this once, that the Bible was not written to us. Rather, the Bible was written for us. And what he simply means is that this ancient text was written over 3,000 years ago, 3,000 plus years. We really don't know how far back it goes, but... What did they see? What did they understand? What did they come to know? Chapter 1, for example, we we studied that. It's the story of creation and often in our modern mindset we we ask how. Uh, how. How did it happen? How many days did it take for everything to be created? What does science say about it? And yet we understand now that science really wasn't part of their mindset. Science wasn't what they were thinking at all. Instead, they were asking, who? Remember, the ancient peoples, they were surrounded by all these other uh, nations, these other states, if you will, that, that were worshiping all these pagan gods. And so for them, we read, when they read it, they, we read that God, Yahweh, did all the creating. He did the creating out of nothing. And so part of that creating we talked about was us. He, he created mankind. And we talked about that, that we were created in his image, that we are to be reflections of God, we are to image him, we are to mirror God. And what it simply means to reflect his image means to copy the things that we see, that we saw God doing in the garden. Remember, God was really the first gardener. He planted the garden. And remember when God took over, or when God created the, the world, it was formless and void and empty and dark. And then God created it, and he created light and life and beauty and order. And so that's what we're supposed to be doing. The problem is we really haven't been doing a very good job at that if you look at our world today. And I, I think for me, if we could just get over, let me do it my way. If we could just get over, okay, let's do it your way, or, or let's just do it our way. And if we could just focus on, let's just do it Yahweh we would be just so much better off right now. But in spite of all these failures and how we've been kind of running the show of the world, we see rays of hope. And that's what God does. I have this reminder in my office. And uh, (laughs) it's a song. It's called Moment by Moment. And at the end of a song, I think it's called the tag. um, Usually the song will fade out with, with these words. And there's this... These words that I keep in my office as a reminder of the rays of hope, I I can have a tendency to really get down on myself. I can blame myself for Kennedy's killing, who knows, everything. When I'm really down, I, I, you know, you win the lottery. And I've used this joke with my wife many times. I won the lottery, but it's all in 20s. You know, you really get down. And so I keep these words, and these are the words, and it really speaks about us and God, our relationship with God. And the words are, the more that I'm broken the more you rebuild. Hey, they got it. Can you go back to slide one? There we go. The more that I'm broken, the more you rebuild. The more that I'm emptied, the more you refill. The more I run from you, the more you pursue. Forever beloved, forever with you. I think it's what we're learning most about God in these chapters, mercy and grace. So chapter 4 is about adam and eve's children and now we're going to look at the fight between these two brothers and really the breakdown of the family so let's go ahead and uh get our bibles get all set we're going to begin in verse one and let me just say this real quick that we we look at this story as maybe some ancient story but i want to remind you again it's very much our story and so we should be asking what do you see in yourself here And what can you learn? So let's begin in verse 1. Now the man had relations with his wife, Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Again she gave birth to his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of flocks. But Cain was a tiller of the ground. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel on his part also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. And its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about when they were in the field, that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. Now before we jump into the text of chapter 4, I want to take you back and just remind you a little something about chapter 3. You remember when God doled out the punishment to Adam and Eve, and He told them, you need to leave the garden. He didn't send them out naked. He clothed them. He really rebuilt them. He gave them something to hold on to. And what he gave them to hold on to was that promise of the coming snake crusher that would redeem mankind and bring hope. That's in chapter 3, verse 15. And so he sends them out of the garden and they were to go out and multiply. They were to work the land. It was They were going to toil in the land. And they were asked, they, the charge for all of mankind was to go and repeat copy what we saw God doing to go into the wilderness emptiness kind of like our hearts like a desert sometimes and, but to go out and to bring light and life and hope and order and they were partly successful with that he blessed them he told them to multiply and they were very successful at that they did multiply so chapter 4 opens with Adam and Eve or Adam having relations with his wife Eve it says here And it says that their firstborn was named Cain. And then in verse 2 it says, And again she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now we don't know if Cain and Abel were twins. I've read commentaries that some believe they were twins. But Cain just just came out first. I've read commentaries that think that maybe there's a hundred years of separation there. We don't really know specifically from the text. But Eve when she proclaims this passage here, it says, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. She was so hopeful. She has these two children, and it's interesting that Cain means acquired, and, the, and Abel, the name means meaningless or worthless or like a vapor where you're here today and gone tomorrow. It's so interesting to me how prophetic Eve really was in naming the children. And she reads this, or she makes this proclamation, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. And in Eve's mind, when she makes that pronouncement, she's thinking back to the promise of 315. The NIV says, uh, speaks of the promise in this way, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This is the promise that she could cry out. So when she cries out, I have gotten this man-child, she's really thinking like, and I hope the man-child is Cain. I hope he's the one. Now, she had great hope for both of her children. She was in hope that one of them would be the snake crusher that was going to restore mankind. She had been devastated by sin. Adam was devastated by sin. The world was devastated by sin. Family is being devastated by sin. And yet, I I can't help but to think that Eve somehow felt responsible. And I think Eve gets a bad rap. She gets a bad rap for being the cause of sin in the garden. But let me say this. Perhaps the reason why Eve was so vulnerable to deception, the reason why the cunning serpent chose her was because Satan knew that God hadn't spoken to Eve directly about the knowledge or the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Everything she re- she said was she was saying from second-hand knowledge. Did God really say? How would she know? She wasn't there. And this, let me explain. This is something I don't think we think about. You've got to go back in chapter 2 and verses 16 and 17 and remember that God told Adam not to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Eve wasn't even created at this time. Eve wasn't created till verses 21 and 24. So how did Eve even know about the tree? Again, the text doesn't say, but it's so fair to assume that the possibility is that Adam was the source of the explanation. And so she's repeating it secondhand. So the application to us is this, is that, look, it's great that you guys came tonight and you're listening and I'm grateful for that. And you're hearing a lesson on the word of God and you come Sunday and that's fantastic but the application for us really is we need to be like the Bereans, which Paul spoke of in Acts 17. Paul said that the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they had received the message with great eagerness, and they had examined the Scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Listen, we we are but men uh, teaching the Word of God, and we're very fallible. My mind, the, the way I speak... The way I think, all of us, I mean, the way we interpret the word of God can be fallible, but God's word is infallible. And so you need to check what we say. Don't take our word for it. Religious leaders can be wrong. And Genesis 3.15 is such an exciting verse. It, it's the first gospel declared in the Bible. It's known as the prote, prote evangelium, which means the, the pre-gospel. And you think as you read through chapter 2 and and chapter 3, you think, man, God is totally going to condemn him. But right here we see that God already had a plan to restore his love to us and there was going to be this child born born, and it was going to be Jesus the man. And through Jesus, God was going to use him to crush the head of the snake and restore, and reverse the fall. So Eve was desperately looking for a sign at this time when she exclaims, I, I have received a man child with the help of the Lord. And as ancient readers, and even as modern readers, we too are looking for that. Like, when's that going to happen? Is this it? At the end there, or the p- second part of verse two, it says, Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And right here, we can already see a connection Connecting us back to the curse, to chapter 3. Abraham, uh, Abraham, Adam. Adam, as he got older, I mean, as Adam raised the boys and the boys got older, he obviously sent them to work. And they have their own interests. They have their own talents. And it shows here that, that Abel, he became a shepherd and Cain worked in the fields. He became a farmer. And again, remember the curse. The curse of Genesis chapter 3 was that God cursed the serpent, then he cursed Satan, and then he cursed the ground. And we already see the connection, Cain connected to the soil. Cain was a tiller of the ground, whereas Abel was a shepherd, as was Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all of their sons, Moses and David, and we see this split, remember? The split of the seed, the seed of the woman, the seed of Satan, going in opposite directions. The seed of the woman would deliver us the snake crusher. The seed of Satan, the children of Satan, go in the other direction. In verses 3 through 5, as we read through this, we see that Cain brings an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brings an offering to the Lord, but he brings the firstlings of his flock or the first fruits, the fat portions. And the Lord has regard for Abel's offering, but he doesn't have regard for Cain's offering. This narrative right here of Cain and Abel teaches us a lesson on what kind of worship is acceptable to God. And that worship, it springs from a pure heart. But we wonder, right? why didn't God accept Cain's offering? What was it about Cain's offering that was, that was so bad that he didn't have regard for it? Immediately, we, we want to know why, and the text doesn't tell us, but it must have had something to do with the heart. It wasn't the state of the sacrifice. Hebrews says this. Hebrews says, by faith, Abel brought a better sacrifice than Cain did. The Apostle John, he mentions the same account in 1 John chapter 3, and he says, Cain's actions were evil, but that his brother's actions were righteous. So it really wasn't what they brought. It was, must have been an attitude of the heart or a certain mentality, but it was a heart condition. There was something going on there that is unspoken. Now, the, the author doesn't tell us because maybe it's not that important. It's not the main thing. The author doesn't really care. Understand, he's just advancing the story. What he really cares about is how Cain's going to respond to God. And we see that. The Lord says, Cain, why are you so angry? Why why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, won't you be lifted up? But if you do bad, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you. God says, Cain, look, it doesn't have to be this way. You don't have to take that path. Well, you can turn it around, son, if you do what is well. But if you don't, there's this predatory animal waiting outside the door. It's sin, and it's crouching, and its desire is for you. And we see Cain opening the door, and he it's like he looks out, and he like wants to play with it. And by doing that, he allows sin to come into his life. You see the progression of sin, and pretty soon you see him Killing his brother Abel in the field, the first murder. Let's read in verse 9. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? And he said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? He said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. You will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is too great to bear. Behold, you have driven me this day from the face of the ground, and from your face I will be hidden. And I will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. So the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord appointed a sign for Cain so that no one finding him would slay him. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So God approaches Cain after the murder and God wants Cain to confess. He wants him to be broken. He allows him the opportunity to, to basically say, God, God, I have done a horrible thing, God. Please forgive me, God. But even here, we, we see this similarity with, with Adam and Eve in the garden. You remember when God asked Adam, who told you you were naked? Did you eat from the tree of, the, of knowledge of good and evil? And he skirts around the question. He doesn't answer it directly. Remember, he's like, this woman you gave me, And what have you done? And The serpent deceived me. Serpent, well, you made me. They all start blaming God. And you see the similarity with him, except this is what's scary. Now you see sin advancing. Cain just flat out lies to God. He doesn't skirt around the topic. He just, I don't, where's your brother? I don't know. Adam and Eve changed the subject. Cain just lied. He flat out lied. You see another tie to the garden in chapter 3 when he says, So, what am I, my brother's keeper? Look, this word keeper, it's the same word that God used in chapter 2, the writer used in chapter 2. You remember the Lord told, after he made the garden, after he made Adam and Eve, he told them they were to rule over the garden, rule over the animals, and to keep it. It's the same word. What am I, my brother's keeper? And it means protecting. It means persevering. But you see just the opposite with these two. They're not protecting. They're not persevering. They're already killing one another. So it all comes out and God says, okay, now it's time for the consequences, the progression of sin. Adam, you remember, he had to work the ground. That was part of his punishment. It would be a struggle. There would be thorns and thistles and... Sweat on your face and before you could eat the bread. But with Cain, you're not going to get anything to grow. Nothing will strengthen you from the ground. Cain was a farmer. This was devastating. This was his livelihood. And so we go, okay, now Cain's ready. Man, sometimes you have to hit the bottom of the barrel before you're ready to give your heart over to the Lord. And he's just going to throw himself on the mercy of the Lord and say, Father, I am so sorry, like the prodigal son. But we don't see that. He doesn't ask for forgiveness. He doesn't even admit that he sinned. The text doesn't indicate that he's even sorry for what he, he has done. He hasn't repented at all. Well, how do we know? Well, unfortunately, because like all of mankind, he begins to blame God. He says, the punishment is too tough to bear, Lord. Behold, you have driven me this day from the face of the ground. And from your face, I will be hidden. And, and I'm going to be a vagrant, and I'm going to be a wanderer, and whoever finds me will certainly kill me, God. He starts feeling sorry for himself, but not to the point of repentance. Very little personal responsibility here. Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Now, in this passage here, Paul is talking about a previous stinging letter that he had already sent to the church. And really it was a rebuke. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to begin in verse 8. And Paul writes, For though I caused you sorrow, for though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that that letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong in everything you have demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in this matter. The difference between godly sorrow that leads to death, worldly sorrow that leads to death, and godly sorrow that leads to biblical repentance, We see right here in the list. First of all, it says no regret. Cain was sorry he was caught. But godly sorrow leaves no regret. I I just want to be open, God. It says earnestness, which means to quickly apply. Like, I'm quickly going to learn the lesson from my mistake. Vindication means clearing yourself. Like, I'm going to do whatever it takes. I got to make this right. Indignation, a strong displeasure in what you have done. Fear and longing I mean, speaks to a desire, zeal, passion for getting things right and avenging, just talks of retribution, avenging this wrong. He says, in everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent, it's just name it God and I'll do it. So if you want to know the heart of someone who is repenting, look for these things. Once again, though, in the bleakest of times, as God always comes to the rescue, God meets us with grace. In verse 15, go back to Genesis 4 and verse 15. It's so interesting how the Lord says to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken out on him sevenfold. And the Lord appointed a sign for Cain, so that no one finding him would slay him. Why uh, why did God release Cain? You think about that? When you first read it, we go, hey, why in the heck is he getting off? Well, for one thing, God knew that Cain would be a walking sermon. That his life, his, the point to his life would be the grace of God versus the consequences of sin. And God protects Adam and Eve, and God protects Cain, and God appoints Cain a sign, it says. Now, Cain is a murderer, and yet God appoints him a sign, it says, To keep him. Again, back to chapter 3. Now sin, again, is punishable by death, but instead God shows mercy and love. But what was the sign? Well, there's many, or there's several theories of what the sign was. It doesn't say that he put a sign on him. Some people believe that there was a mark, like on his forehead, like don't kill Cain or something. But in the book of Numbers, chapters 35, Specifically, verses 9 through 34, it speaks of cities of refuge. And God told Moses, he said, listen, when you cross the Jordan with the people, tell the people when they cross the Jordan to find and to build to make cities of refuge. Their purpose was that if a manslayer had killed somebody unintentionally, they would have some place to flee to, some place to wait, to be free of vengeance until they could get a fair trial. Now, many believe that the background of these cities is rooted in this sign that God gave Cain. Remember, the purpose of the sign was protection from vengeance, a city from vengeance. And in two verses later, from 15 and verse 17, we find Cain building cities. He builds his first city. He's a builder of cities now. And he builds the first city. He names it Enoch after his first son. And that may have been intended as a sign, that gave him divine protection against revenge. Super interesting to me. Some other similarities uh, to Eve and Adam's story is, understand, it's really the same story. It's just darker. The writer is showing us the progression of sin. And the parents were driven out of the garden, and one day, God said, they're going to die. Cain is banished from his safe community, always on the lookout for death. And I know as, we, as we've been studying it, I've heard comments, you've talked to me, how you can relate to Adam and Eve's story. I, I solely can. But we don't talk too much about this story relating to it, do we? Because it's, it's, it gets even darker. And this is what happens, church, when sin starts to take control. First it starts with the heart, and then it infects the mind, and then the actions. Adam and Eve, they had a choice. They could do it my way or God's way. They tried to cover it up. They didn't want to come clean. There were consequences. They started blaming God. And that created a distance between them and God and them and one another. And then there was fear. Instead of walking with God, they're hiding from God. It gets darker and it gets deeper. The narrative is telling us this, that the infection is spreading. The Bible tells us that There's two kinds of people. There's people who see their sin and they just don't know it's there. And there's people who see it but they don't hate it. Jeremiah 8 verse 11 speaks of this. The first type of person says, they dressed the wound of my people as though it were not serious. Peace, peace they say when there is no peace. Are they ashamed of their detestable conduct? No, they have no shame at all. They don't even know how to blush. What is God saying? He's saying, you know, the people have a wound. Peace, peace, they say, peace, peace. They're not taking care of the wound. It's like you have a knife wound, a stab right in your back, and someone comes in and says, bro, you're bleeding. You need to get to the hospital. You could die. And you go, no, I'm cool. I'm good. I don't see it. There's another type of person. They see it, but they don't hate it. In Psalm 36, verses 1 and 2, it says, I have a message from God in my heart concerning the sinfulness of the wicked. There is no fear of God before his eyes. In his own eyes, they flatter themselves too much to detect or hate their sin. It's talking about the sinful nature of the wicked person. There's no fear of God in their eyes. They don't care what God thinks. Pride flatters themselves. Sometimes that's intellectual pride. Sometimes that's physical pride. But they don't see themselves the way God sees us. They don't see themselves the way they're supposed to. We don't see our sin, or we see it and we don't hate it. But in the middle of all this tohu bohu, this emptiness and waste and desolate, there's light again, there's hope. So, we're through verse 16. But what does it mean to all of us? We, how do we take these principles from this story and bring them into our lives today? Remember, what did it mean to them? We just talked about that. Now, what does it mean to us? Let's bring that home into our modern culture. I, I really had planned on finishing this chapter tonight and even into chapter 5. But as I went through the week, the, the Spirit just kept, just kept prompting me. You know, look, when you teach verse by verse, it's right in front of you. You, you have to talk about it. And I, I w- think that I want to say a few things about sin. I want to bring it into the light a little bit, I think. And, uh, let me just say this. I think we take sin less and less seriously than we ever have before. The world takes sin less seriously, but even in the church, we take it less seriously, I think, than we've ever have before. We've kind of, we use sin now as a manageable term. Like we look at that fantastic piece of chocolate cake over there in the coffee shop on the counter, and we go, oh, that thing is sinfully good. That's manageable to us, or we joke about it with somebody and they bro i'm a. last night i got into it with my wife i was a prideful dog and the other guy goes yeah bro i totally know compared to you i'm a saint bernard i'm a chihuahua we we, we joke about one of the most hideous sins in the bible that god detests pride we wouldn't do that with child abuse or or rape and yet the sin that god hates the most we don't take it serious and it could be It could be any kind of sin, gossip or slander or pride or platitudes or idleness. We've made it convenient. It's a manageable term. If we don't talk about it, it'll eat us alive. It's a crouching predator outside the door. And then it'll come after your family. And we don't want it in here. We don't want it in our homes. So I just felt like we've got to talk about it. There is a progression. And this is how it starts. Paul addressed it in Ephesians 4. This is how it starts. It says, In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. This word foothold it it means a little dwelling place. It implies like a finger hold for a rock climber where you're climbing. You can just get a finger hold there and you're just hanging on just a little space, a little spot. It implies like a beachhead, like when the Allies stormed the beaches of Normandy and they were just looking for a little spot. They they hit the beach and there's no protection. You got all these pillboxes with machine guns raining down fire on them. And they're just looking for a crater to jump in, some kind of shelter. They jump into a crater. They're not advancing. They're not retreating. They're just ducking. And when they realize uh, I'm alive, they reach in their pocket. They fill up a sandbag. They set it up there. Set up another one. No advancing. They start digging in. That's what Satan does in your heart. starts with anger. Starts digging in, just not getting noticed. He's not advancing, he's not retreating, he doesn't want to be noticed. Starts digging down. It's called a bitter root. And they're hard to get out a bitter root. You've tried to get a root out of your, your garden, your, your yard. It's hard. And those bitter roots turn into strongholds. Those pillboxes, they call them up there on the cliff that were shooting down, those were strongholds. Now the Allies eventually they did advance. But do you know the amount of casualties that they had to experience in order to get there? It's the same thing. When Satan gets a stronghold, the Bible talks, it it builds it to a stronghold. From anger, a foothold, to a bitter root, to a stronghold. The casualties in your family, those you love. It affects your heart and your mind, and then there's action. Sin, as you know, is like a roaring lion looking to devour and it's really hard to control it. Listen, I nor you are the lion tamers of sin. If we don't take it serious, it will control you. And I would ask for those of you who go, well, that's all good for you church people. Look, are you you stronger than Paul? Look what Paul wrote in Romans 7. Paul, who, Paul, man, he gave so much great instruction to the churches, yet Paul says, For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who does it, but it is sin living in me that does it. Paul was just like, look, I want to do what is good, but I don't do it. And I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. That was Adam and Eve. That was Adam and Eve's boys that was Paul that's me and I hate to say it welcome to the club you're part of it sin eats us alive if we don't take it seriously and the Bible is full of progressive sin now because of time I'm gonna skip a slide and and get right to our ending here I want to say this how do we master this predatory animal crouching at the door the Bible is very consistent in this it says we need to come clean and that's just a biblical word for confession and so I want to end with some confessional tips to help you get some rhythms to your life Number one, just take an honest look at, at your life. You know what, we all have blind spots and why do they call them blind spots? Because we don't see them. And it takes someone to bring them out to us. And to, once we see it, we can change it. To confess is just simply to acknowledge the truth about ourselves. And confession doesn't have to be in public where you come up here and tell everybody. But it's with the people that love you and that's what's so fantastic about church that you have people here who love you, you have life groups, you have elders, you have pastors, you have people who you can trust and you, assist, you go into them and say hey listen, I give you permission, tell me what you see. What do you see in me? And I guess the best way is like the slide, it Just let's just let the Apostle John speak to us if you're thinking Again, that's good for all of you there. But, but John, he says in First John, if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Listen, if you need to get something out and maybe you don't have a life group or you don't feel close to anybody um, sitting here i want you to come see me look my past my life i will never be in a position to judge anybody ever the things that i've done the things that i've been forgiven of boy probably nothing you say is going to shock me that i didn't probably do worse there's be no judgment. It, for us, it'll be a, a time of refreshing in my mind. And as we close out, I want to pray over you. But there's not going to be a closing song. What we're going to do is I'm going to show you a YouTube video. It's a worship song. And I want this song just to wash over you. So you could truly be free. And during the song, I'm just going to be down front, and I'm just going to be praying for us, for our church and for our community. And so, Todd, if you can um, cue up the song. For those of you online, or when you hear the recording, you're not going to hear the song. And um, it's by a a band called All, All Sons and Daughters. Maybe you can listen to it now. You can go to YouTube, and it's called Brokenness Aside.